listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. The deeper we get into spiritual practice, the more we recognize that uh, simple does not mean necessarily easy. In other words, this practice is actually incredibly simple. Sit still, watch what comes up. That's about it. There's not a lot more to it than that. And then what that begins to exercise in us, what that begins to work out, if you will, is this awareness of what's going on. A deep clarity kind of shows up. I've talked before about how so much of our work is about stilling the waters of our life, stilling the flow. And in doing so, we begin to find the things that impede the natural flow of our life. I heard this expressed really beautifully by a teacher who who said basically, when we begin to slow down, we begin to have a stillness practice. We, we begin to incorporate this stillness practice into our life. So it's not just an afterthought or something that we do haphazardly or, or like just on Monday nights at 7.30 or something like that. When it actually becomes a deepening part of who we are, what begins to occur is that this flow that typically is racing, you know, the, the, the raging waters of life begin to become more and more still. Progressively, they become just this stillness, this, this clarity. And there's, there's wonderful uh, attributes that come with any type of practice that put us in that space. But there's a, a, another edge to that sword, as, as beautiful as it is. Uh, we also then are in essence forced, if we're really paying attention, we are forced to look at what's in the water, what's there. And sometimes those stones uh, have been there for a long time. They've collected a lot of moss. We know we need to get them out of the way so that the flow can return, but they're slippery, they're awkward, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of concentration and attention to move them off to the side, so to speak. But we do it. Stone by stone. And every time we sit still, it's analogous to moving a stone. Whenever we can just take a break, relax. And it's not taking a break by escaping. That's like one of the, one of the most difficult things. When, when this work, when we're talking about stilling the waters of our life, what we're really trying to do is be totally aware of what's going on. It's the awareness that moves the stone. It's not, you know, heavy lifting and struggle, although there's some of that mixed in usually as our practice kind of begins. But more than anything else, it's the awareness of the stone that actually allows it to be lifted almost effortlessly and taken off to the side. 
when we're not aware of it, when we refuse to look at it, so to speak, there's resistance mixed in with what we're doing. And then it becomes, you know, the old, the, my favorite Laurel and Hardy uh, episode with them, you know, pushing the, the piano up the stairs. You know what I'm talking about, I hope, at least, if you have not seen that. That is the ultimate in uh, expressive zen. That's, uh, <laughs> those are a couple of bodhisattvas right there for the benefit of all beings, trying to allow someone up there to play these tuneful musings, and they just keep blowing it. And you know how that story ends. Does any, anybody know? Anybody know how it ends? They keep pushing it up, it keeps falling down. They keep pushing it up, it keeps falling down. They keep, they finally get it up to the top and they realize that there was a driveway that went around. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy. So the same thing applies for our work here. If you are a newbie, if you've never done this before, uh, all you got to do is pay attention to what's going on. Just breathe. Make friends with this moment. You know, whatever it is, whatever's showing up, there's nothing you have to do. You just have to be aware. The awareness is what makes the clarity and the clearing of our stream effortless. If you've been doing this a while, be really honest with yourself. Don't hide when you're sitting tonight. Don't try to run away. Try to be right there in the heart of existence with your full mind and your full heart, open to whatever is, realizing that whatever is there that scares you, whatever you're afraid of actually facing, cannot and will not hurt you. Test it out. Don't take my word for it. Test that. Actually, never take my word for anything. Test it out. Test it out. So rest in that spaciousness. If you have doubt, great. Rest fully present with that doubt. If you have bliss, great. Rest with that bliss. If you are absolutely clear about what is impeding the free flow of your life, rest in that absolute lucidity, that absolute clarity. Just be right there with it. And sit still. If your mind starts taking you into some future engagement that you've got, say, for instance, like your wife is about to give birth or something like that, just rest. Just rest. <laughs> uh, I was sharing uh, with someone as we were coming in, um, how's she doing? I said, well, last night she gave me the yellow light. I said, you know, because she, she, she came in and it's like, you know, I meant that when I hit 11 p.m. at night, I'm not really all mic. I'm kind of, um, I'm something else. I'm just not really all there because I'm getting sleepy and so forth. I'm kind of kind of tipping. And, and, of course, my wife is on her game between, like, 9 p.m. and midnight. And so it's a real interesting relationship uh, in many respects. Uh, she, it's, it's about 11 o'clock, and she approaches me. And she says, honey? I'm like, yeah, yeah, hi, hi. How you doing? How you doing? And she goes, Want to feel something? I'm like, yeah, sure. Wait, what? Huh? She goes, I've got a contraction. And it's like, boom, I'm awake. Game on. All right. Do we have to go now? You know, type thing. And she's like, she's like, no, I just want you to be with it. 
who's the Zen master now, you know? And I could just feel, I could feel her belly, just this amazing tightening. It's like her body is saying, I'm almost ready. I'm almost ready to really let go. It's so simple, not easy. It's so simple. So if I get a phone call during the sitting, you understand, if I'm not here when, when you come out of the sitting, just, um, I don't know, Dave, give a talk or something, you know. <laughs> we should do fun. Mom, actually, you could tell stories. You could tell stories about when I was a little kid. Um, actually, don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but all, all kidding aside, there is joy in this moment. No matter what's going on, no matter what may occur, no matter what disasters may unfold, no matter what glory is ahead of you, no matter what tragedy you've experienced, no matter what injustice you have seen or walked through, this moment, right now, and right now, and right now, forever, is available. Making friends with that moment and then from that moment allows us to walk as sages and saints and bodhisattvas walk. And that's with deep curiosity, deep wonder, tenderness, compassion, wisdom, and clarity. This, this theme of uh, simple but not easy. I think we can look at the entire scope of, of uh, spiritual work as being simple but not easy. We can look at uh, sayings by great people and they're all pointing basically towards the same thing regardless of their tradition, be it Hindu, Christian, Muslim, Jew, scientific materialism, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're all, they're all kind of going into this same space. And a quote that I just love is from uh, Albert Einstein where he says, the true value of a human being can be found in the degree to which he has attained liberation from the self. Pretty powerful from... Uh, a scientist slash mystic. Beautiful, beautiful way of saying it. The degree to which we have attained liberation from ourselves, this idea of a self. And that's basically all it is. It's an idea. To unpack this a little bit, it's actually quite simple. Not easy, but it's simple. When we look at a self, when we look at our self, what are we looking at? What are we really looking at? If I asked for you to point to yourself, most people would go, okay, which is pretty close to the heart. You don't find people ever, <laughs> at least I haven't yet, they never point to yourself and they never go, or, you know, or, you know, 
You know, they never, they're never in that, sp they never point to the face or the head or anything, you know, armpit. They just always go to body. I am body. Okay? And that is partially true, but it's partial. You are also your mind. Not your brain. I'm not saying, of course, you are part, brain is part of you, but, but not brain, but mind. You're also that. You're also the, the everything else. But you're not limited to the everything else. You're not limited to your toes, I hope. You're not limited to your physical presence. You're not limited to your name. You're not limited to your thoughts, be they dreams and or aspirations or stories that you bring with you about, you know, who you are or who you think you are. We're actually all of those things. And the degree to which we cling to those stories, the degree to which we contract around them and build kind of an edifice of selfhood is the degree to which we get in the way of our own natural tendency to open, to awaken. Awakening is a, a deeply natural tendency. So, how, do, how is it that we do that? Well, there are all sorts of great sages uh, from time immemorium who have, you know, all basically pointed us in a very, very similar direction. And they, they all tend to point us in the direction of not contracting. Liberation from the self, in other words, is not holding on to particular fears. It's not holding on to certitude. It's not holding on to people, ideas, things, belief systems, convictions. It doesn't mean that we deny them. It means that we don't scrunch them. We don't grip. As long as we are not grasping, but instead dancing with whatever it is that's in front of us, be it a conviction, a belief system, a memory, a plan, an achievement, a failure, whatever it is, as long as we're not clinging to any of those things, as long as we're not just contracting around them, we have the opportunity to become liberated from selfhood. So, essentially, liberation comes from stepping, I guess you could say, out of the cage that we've, we've built ourselves that separates us from this deep singularity that is all things. And when I say all things, I mean all things. I mean every planetary system in the universe externally and everything within, too. The spin of our DNA, all of it, all of it, that infinitude that deep singularity is something we our entire lifetime we tend to build a cage to separate us from it from that because it is too destabilizing it's too scary for the ego the ego says it wants liberation and then when it realizes what it actually has to face and what the implications of the whole story as opposed to its series of incomplete stories 
actually adds up to. When it sees the whole picture, it basically, you know, warning, 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 you know, red alert, red alert, stop now. And this is really interesting when you see this in spiritual work because you'll find people who have actually gone a fair distance, who know enough, who are open enough to where it's kind of, awakening is kind of bubbling. It's kind of bubbling, bubbling all around them. And then they back up, back out of it. And they can't back out of it totally. It's like trying once again to put the genie back in the bottle, to borrow a cliche. You can't, you can't fit in those clothes anymore. You can't go back, and you're too afraid to go forward. So there's this real uncomfortable spiritual purgatory that we can find ourselves in, where we are kind of in this nether space. It's not real good. It's not real bad. It's kind of, yeah, now where am I? And this can be really disconcerting in the practice. It can be really scary. So the big reminder is, and the opportunity for us as we practice, is to recognize that liberation from the self actually shows up whenever, whenever we do one thing. And we can do this all day. Whenever, whenever it comes up, we can just remind ourselves, oh yeah, it's to release the contraction, whatever that contraction is. Whenever we find ourselves contracted around a certain thing, a certain issue, a certain mind state, a certain person, a certain activity. Breathe. Create space around whatever is going on. It's an effortless situation when we bring awareness to whatever it is and then breathe. We cannot be aware of breath without being aware. And when we can become aware, not only of our breath, but of whatever is kind of churning and burning within us, or whatever we're jonesing for more of, you know, whenever we can be aware of that, that awareness is freedom from whatever that is. Simple, but not easy. So the one thing... The one thing that gets in the way of liberation from this self, as Einstein put it, the one thing is contraction. And we contract typically around five areas. So I'm going to throw a little Buddhism at you here and uh, let you know kind of what these areas are. And you can kind of play with them in your day-to-day, -day, see if, uh, if this is useful at all. That in us, you can, you can identify the contraction when you see what it is in you that feels desire. Desire. This does not mean desire is bad. Desire is quite beautiful. It's quite marvelous. It's kind of like the fuel of humanity in many respects. But when we contract around desire, we defile what it can show us. We cloud the way. We muddy up the waters. Same thing applies for anger. Now, anger is not really good or bad. It may go against your concept of what a good Buddhist should be or someone on the spiritual path. I'm a spiritual person. I don't get angry. 
even though I want to call that person a rat bastard. I won't, because I'm spiritual, right? <laughs> this type of a situation, this type of denial, impedes awakening, big time. And it's subtle, because the ego thinks it's cloaked in a pure cloth of awakened fiber. I have no idea where that metaphor came from, but you get the idea, all right? The pure cloth of awakened fiber, because it won't get angry, and I have no desires. Yeah, bullshit, come on. You can't, th this work is not about being cut off from the neck down. Of course you have desires, of course. Of course you have anger. Are you caught by it? That's the big question. Are you caught by your anger? Does your anger get you to start spinning? Have you ever noticed this? When you get angry, there's the kind of anger that you, you experience and then it kind of goes away. And there's the other kind of anger that you experience and then suddenly it's as if something grabs hold of it and starts carving a new record about it. Damn it, if only they would understand. You know, that type of thing. And the voice kind of starts going. There's like a lecture. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing performance, a soliloquy on the stage of mind that gets thrown. Quite convincingly. The next area is the area of indolence or sloth, torpor, whatever you want to call it. Sloth. Absolute, ugh, just, I want to watch football. That's it. That's it. That's it, honey. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just watching football today. You know? Uh, by the way, I'm not allowed to do that. I've tried. I've tried several times, so that it's actually a bad example. I just want to watch football. Like hell, you are. <laughs> Actually, she doesn't go at me like that, but she starts giggling. She'll just, my wife will, this is probably more information than any of you need, but still, it's, <laughs> like I'll, I'll say, you know, I just want to watch football today, and she'll just start going, <laughs> yeah, sure, I'll bet you do, you know. We need to clean the gutters, and I'm pregnant, so. <laughs> So I clean the gutters and then try to sneak in maybe half of the game or something like that. And then, you know, at other points, uh, we, we work out, we, we have a negotiation where, where I will actually uh, go sloth-like in, in the house. Being, being a sloth, being a couch potato is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently evil, okay? But what it does is it allows for us, it's, it's got a lot of handles on it, just like desire, okay? And just like anger, handles for the ego to grasp. So typically what we will do is we will use sloth, we will, we will use that couch potato attitude as a way of avoiding what needs to be done, whether it's something as simple as cleaning the gutters or as deeply rooted in our psyche as facing a truth that we just don't want to face. All sloth is a form of avoidance. We then have a great one that I think is actually kind of cool. It's doubt. If you cling to doubt, if you contract around doubt, this is not true. This can't be so. This, you know, if we end up doing that, what we do is we limit our ability to experience the opening that the universe is always throwing at us. 
The universe has always given us a red carpet. Every single thing that is put in our direction, every single thing that is put in our life is an opportunity for awakening. And the minute we go into doubt is the minute we go into judgment. And as Mother Teresa loves to say, with, with judgment, there is no room for love. When we judge, when we are all about evaluating, yes, no, good, bad, I'll give that an 8.5 out of 10, you know. When we're in that space of evaluation, what we tend to do is, is we lock into mind as opposed to the awareness of what's being presented. It's not wrong to have doubt. I, I tell you guys all the time, you should never take what I say at face value. You should try it out for yourself. Having a healthy sense of skepticism is an open relationship to doubt as opposed to one that's closed. Because if you are certain of your doubt, you are basically clinging to your doubt. And in doing so, you build the seeds of war. You, you sow them in that moment. Doubt is not wrong. Clinging to doubt is wrong. Being a couch potato is not wrong. Clinging to that behavior is wrong. Being angry is not wrong. Clinging to it is wrong. Being, having desires is not wrong. Clinging to those desires is wrong. And then lastly, we would say an avoidance of stillness. If you are always, as we say in Zen, the one who is busy, if you are constantly go, 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 go all the time, that's the opposite of sloth, right? But it's exactly the same disease, similar to greed and aversion. It's the same disease. It's just moving in different directions. Sloth, okay? and refuse, uh, refusal to be still. So when we can have an openness around our avoidance patterns, when we can have an openness, a breath, some space that begins to surround all this stuff that shows up, be it desire, be it anger, be it sloth, be it doubt, be it an avoidance of stillness, Especially worry. If we use worry, if we cling around worry, if we set up future situations that might happen and then build stories, write stories around them, what it does is that will always take us off center, off and out of the now, out of this present moment. All of these things put together keep us as a self. They keep us bound. And deep spiritual work is about being boundless. It's about not having boundaries in the sense that we recognize fully we are part of the infinite. Not that you don't have a boundary where this is okay for you to do and this is not okay. Those are actually very important spiritually. Okay? The, the, the boundarylessness that I'm talking about is the ability to literally make friends with what is. Once we can do that, we are free. 
no matter what shows up, we actually have the tools necessary to offer an appropriate response no matter what's going on. We're no longer bound by our worry of some future event that hasn't happened yet. We're no longer bound by our anger of some injustice that may have happened. We're no longer bound by our desire. I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. We're no longer bound by our sloth. We're not bound by any of it. We have an open relationship with all of it. And what, what's more is we can take all these very natural tendencies that show up in our psyche and we can let them guide us towards an awareness of actually what's going on. We can begin to see them as stones, as debris in the flow of our life. And we can be aware of it and then effortlessly move it off to the side of the stream so that our life flows again, unimpeded, freely, freely. There is clarity. And in that clarity comes this inspired, spontaneous gift at each moment that we can give to the world. And that is an appropriate response, a compassionate and wise offering all the time. Any questions? Yeah, it's maybe a bad metaphor. Um, uh, when I say, when something comes up, some type of negativity or resistance comes up in your practice, let's say it's one of the things I was talking about. There's extreme doubt or there's worry or there's an avoidance of being still. You're, you're busy, you know. When that impulse comes up, when you can sense it, you can sense, whoa, there's, some av there's an avoidance pattern going off right there. Or, whoa, there's some, there's some anger. You pick, you know, pick whatever it is. If you can be aware of that anger, take a breath, generate some space around that anger, suddenly this mystical thing has happened in your awareness. You have turned your anger into a subject of a deeper object, excuse me, turned it into an object of a deeper subject. It has become, your anger has become something your awareness is now surrounding. Okay? What is that awareness? We suddenly start literally going into a much broader, wider space. And it's in that, that wide space where we can, we can, in essence, dance with the entire universe because we are it. When I, say, when I say dance, I mean utter intimacy. Utter intimacy, we mistake oftentimes for being in the throes of a passionate embrace or making love or something like that. But real intimacy is being close to without grasping. It's without trying to get anything. And if we can take our anger, for instance, and be right next to it fully, fully accepting that the anger is there, 
Also, recognizing that anger, like everything else in the universe, is temporary. It'll come up and it'll also go away. We develop a certain, almost mountainous immovability, a still presence in the face of whatever shows up. And compassion is born there. It's born from that space. I have no idea if I'm making any sense. <laughs> Sometimes I just keep talking until I see somebody just go, and then I'll shut up. So if ever you want me to shut up, just nod and keep your eyes open. Something like that will work, maybe. Meet, meet, your, meet everything that shows up, David. Meet everything that shows up with, with, this, just the, with your totality. It seems to me that just the feeling of it is that, I mean, I'm beginning to feel like that, that it's sort of like waves and, and somehow you just have to stay on top of the wave or something like that. Like surfing? But if you get behind the wave or in front of the wave, it catches you up. There's something about being with whatever it is right now as it's changing. Yeah, okay, so cool. So if you're looking at it as a wave and, and like things come in waves, if you've ever noticed feelings do that a lot, especially the great one that, that can teach us that beautifully is grief. If you're in a grief situation, you know how it comes in waves. It's like you don't even expect it. It like hits you and you just break. And then you kind of go back to what you're doing. And then like, you know, sometimes weeks, days, you know, whatever, later it happens again. What we can notice is these waves, immediately we feel like um, from, from a contracted perspective, we have to deal with this, which is true. We do have to deal with it. That, that's a partial truth. It's just not complete. It's not only that we have to deal with it, we have to face it. We have to willingly meet that wave as a surfer. Now, there's this really cool thing that happens. It begins to shift in our work the more we stop avoiding a stillness practice and the more we kind of incorporate it into our, our, our way of being. What happens is we go from surfer, which is kind of like an enlightened ego, to wave itself. We actually become that oceanic expanse. And then, from that oceanic expanse, we recognize that we are also the sky and the stars and the earth and everything else. And we can still behave appropriately in the world. We recognize that we are not separate from the infinite. We are indeed part of it, and it is part of us. And that's where the dance is. Yeah. So back to the metaphor of the river and the, the stones, the rocks. That one worked? Yeah, but I'm thinking that, uh, that it sounds like it's more, it's not so much moving the rocks as the clarity of the water and being able to see through it. You know, if it's cloudy, you don't see the rocks, but if it's clear, you know where to step, you know, and you can negotiate the... Uh, the crossing. Sure. Um, and that the rocks are still there, your emotions, your, you know, all that, the desires, but you see them clearly. And 
can step uh, next to them. Sure. Yeah, I like that a lot. The um, uh, rocks are a metaphor for attachments, and they disappear when you let go, right? Uh -huh. And so the, the rocks, in essence, kind of, they just don't exist once we let go of, of the delusion that they're actually even there. So we can negotiate. We can, we can negotiate, but that still implies that they are substantial. Right. So just playing with the words. Right. Still, still, the metaphor, I think, is quite... It, it was really helpful to me, especially when I was kind of in this mid-space in my practice where I was no longer... Uh, you know, a total beginner, and I was also not adept at anything, really. And so I, I found that to be really helpful to be able to just, what is it that I'm clinging to? Looking for those stones, looking for the branch, looking for anything that created an eddy off to the side where I would just keep spinning and spinning. So why isn't my practice going anywhere? Well, because you haven't recognized the attachment that's keeping you in that space. And it's one of those things we talked about. It's an avoidance of stillness. It's worry. It's doubt. It's sloth. It's anger. It's desire. It's one of those things that is keeping you wherever you are. And then doubt, um, it seems to me that, a more, that, that another subtle one is certainty. I don't think it's so subtle. Uh, <laughs> I think, well, I think, you know... Doubt is a form of certainty, right? Yeah. It, yeah, it, it usually masks as, well, I don't think so, but deep down it's like, no way. <laughs> and this, that's the real, that's the it's sign. it's easier to catch the doubt than to catch the certainty because the certainty seems so self-evident to yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we're looking at liberation from the self-evidence as well. Yeah, a simple but not easy. I think it's a really good point. I think we should add that to the Buddhist canon. What do you say? <laughs> Hey, Buddha, you forgot certitude. <laughs> Thank you. Yes? Um, this is related to the Einstein quote, but yeah. um, this getting rid of attachments and clinging, when you face your attachments and clinging, you reason with yourself for why it's not good. And it's not good for the thing you're attached to either or the person you're attached to either, and you start letting go of those attachments, what do you do with it when you feel more like you're flatlining than opening? Explain what flat, flatlining would feel like in this, um, in this work. That the attachments that give you pleasure aren't giving you pleasure anymore, but you don't feel like you're getting something else in its place. You feel more like you're on mental quaaludes and you're just... <laughs> right, where you're just kind of, you're dead, you're numb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really normal stage in, in the process. Because the, uh, the things that used to give us pleasure that don't anymore, usually after a stillness practice, are exactly the things we probably want to let go of anyway. Then the, the mind or the ego, which I use interchangeably, the small self, is looking for a replacement and it better happen quickly. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's when... Doubt creeps in, desire creeps in, maybe avoidance patterns creep in, maybe certitude creeps in, and that certitude might be, this sucks. You understand? Uh -huh. And so now we're actually practicing with exactly what we need to practice with. It's the stuff that's more subtle. 
it's not the stuff we knew we should let go, we, we needed to surrender and we did it. Now, now it actually settles down into a much trickier, more subtle, subtle spaciousness, which is this, this ground that usually when we're beginners, it doesn't, it doesn't show up. But now it's like, oh, I still have a lot further to go. So the, while it may feel like you are becoming numb and, and maybe just <clears throat> utterly nonplussed by everything. Uh, this is actually kind of a natural, a natural stage of development. And we get to become very, very intimate with that discomfort. And once we become totally intimate with that discomfort and recognize that it too is temporary like everything else, then we can bust through into the next space, which is recognizing that everything is actually imbued with deep meaning. But we have to hit that wall of... I haven't met anybody, at least, who hasn't in, in the process. So, yeah. Now, don't attach to it, though. <laughs> don't, don't create a contraction around that. Otherwise, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll lose, its, uh, lose the, you know, the key. And the, the key here is helping you unlock what you know, the next step is without you being bound by some type of achievement orientation. You know? So, yeah. You're welcome. Yes? Oh, I'm not attached. Well, I mean to everybody else. All right. We're not yeah. Oh, good. And um, I was... Don't do it again, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I will because it hurts so badly. Myself just felt absolutely horrible, and it took me a while the self, to take it off. The I self felt the, uh, yeah. I, I sat down on that bench to take my shoes off, and it was like, it creaked like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, anyway. It totally disturbed me, the creaking. <laughs> well, myself was like, you know. Um, and then I just wanted to say, you know, I, I've had some quiet with myself. And then I find, you know, just like you're talking about with the ego, I find, oop, he's saying wrong and bad too much. <laughs> ego is, yeah. You know the way I, I just want to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm observing it. Mm -hmm. that I, I, what, what, what is observing it? I'm observing that I want, my ego wants to find some fault here. Right, but I'm curious about what's observing the ego find, finding fault. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? Not the I. It's the what can observe the I. That small move, it's very simple. It's not easy. But it's very simple. Stepping back, that spaciousness that can observe this, the, the embarrassment, that can observe the, the shame, that can observe, right? That which is aware of the shame is totally free of the shame. The awareness of shame is free of the shame. Okay? So there's no I there because that awareness of I is also free of I. And that's where we attain liberation from the self, which is exactly what Einstein was talking about. Well, I was just feeling really... Who was? <laughs> My God. <laughs> My God was. <laughs> 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 
Wait a minute. It's not yours. Oh my goodness. Language really can't. It does. It does. I, I mean, I'm, I'm teasing you here. No. But, there, but, you know, one of the cool exercises is watch how often you say I. That's all trivial. It's not that the I doesn't exist. It does. It totally does. But it's so incomplete compared to this deeper truth that goes beyond the I and or is liberated from the self. Well, you know what I just thought of? Babies aren't full of I. You're right. They're just not. Well, well, let, let's accept they are. They are actually totally I. Rather than being um, feeling at one with the universe, they see themselves as the universe, which is slightly different than knowing that you're not the universe, and then coming into the realization that you are. One is what we call a pre-egoic development, and the other one is a trans-egoic development. And when we confuse the pre and the trans, like that, we call it the pre-trans fallacy. So there's this, there's, I know. I am not, no, no, no. This, how could I? How could I? No, Ken Wilber talks about this extensively. It's the biggest mistake people have made in the New Age movement. They think that some pre-conscious aha moment is actually a trans-egoic experience. And it's absolutely not. All it does is it reifies a self that thinks it's awake. So what the, what the baby, what the infant has to go through then is recognizing, my God, I cannot get whatever I want. And that's called two, age two. <laughs> and I am living it right now with a daughter who, precious as she is, she's basically, you know, yelling screw you to the world at least half of her day. You know, and you just kind of patiently, you can't get mad at that. I mean, she's building structure that is totally necessary for her to let go of this. She's building the structure that she will at some point need to let go of if she wants to walk the path. Or it will be, the structure will be taken from her at the moment of her death, whenever that is. I just absolutely adore the innocence of a newborn, though. I guess I was thinking Oh, there's, of course, of course. But that preference will put you into your attachment. The preference for the, yeah. that adoration, trust me, I'm there with you, okay? But also creating space around that adoration allows for that adoration actually to be expressed in really, really healthy ways. It's, it's unencumbered with selfhood, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes? Um, when we're in that spinning, like anger or worry, Mm -hmm. And it asks us to create space, become aware of it. Sometimes I feel like it's we're in that space of anger or worrying, and it's, things are pressing my mental buttons that's just making me go, go, go. Yeah. And it's almost like if we create space around it, we're back into our mind or our ego again. How do we not judge it? By being aware of that stuff that's going on as opposed to creating space. Creating spaces sounds very active. I'm gonna create space around this anger, damn it. Oh, uh, I'm, you know, and we give up. Instead of creating space around the anger, become totally aware of the anger. That's the space, it's, it self-creates. It's. Don't get into that mind, no, don't judge it. You don't, be aware of the judgment. 
Be, in other words, in other words, the, the, you know, this this really creating space, which is all we're really doing here. Creating space is simply allowing for awareness to envelop whatever it is that we're experiencing. Total awareness of my anger. Total awareness of my negativity. Total awareness of my my feeling like a victim or feeling like a you know I need to control or fe- <laughs> right. That awareness is the space. Okay. That awareness is infinite. Yeah. There is nothing outside of that awareness. Mm. Okay. If there's nothing outside of that awareness, it means that everything is within us. Yeah. Where's the self there? Not... Yeah. Okay. Easy. Right? Thank you for coming tonight. Very much. Yes.